Hello, and welcome to How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. I'm your host, Megan Thompson, licensed clinical professional counselor and registered play therapist supervisor. We at MTC teach parents how to eliminate the daily meltdown and shutdown cycle for your sensitive children and teens. Highly sensitive children make up 15 to 20% of the population, according to research that has been gathered for over a century. And this podcast answers one question. How can you raise emotionally intelligent children, stop walking on eggshells, and help your child express their needs safely without punishments, yelling, or coddling. If you wanna know the answer, you're in the right place. Hi everybody, Megan Thompson here with Megan Thompson Coaching. I wanted to uh, speak about a very important topic, a topic that is obviously near and dear to my heart, as well as many of you and and to bust some myths because I've been seeing several themes in terms of the conversations that I've been having with many of you and uh, many of the parents that we speak about in um, speak to in our private practice as well. So uh, just a little bit about me, licensed clinical professional counselor, registered play therapist, and I run the largest group practice that specializes in working with highly sensitive children uh, in the nation to my knowledge. And um, we work with highly sensitive kids with explosive behaviors, as well as um, highly sensitive teens who engage in life-threatening behaviors. So what that means is that over the years, I've got a lot of experience, but also a lot of training in, in solving the problem of helping parents eliminate meltdowns and, um, and prevent life-threatening behaviors for their children and their adolescents. And so when we think about the the challenges that I hear many parents speak about when we speak on the phone, one of the things that I hear for parents is is a question, a a big question about when when it's time to take action about parenting and and in, in evaluating whether or not your child needs help or whether or not you need help in parenting your highly sensitive kid. One of the things that I think is super important for parents at this stage of the game is if your child is expressing significant words like, I wish I would die, um, I hate you, uh, I wish that I weren't alive, I wish that life would be, um, that I, I wasn't around anymore, I wish that I wouldn't have... Um, I wish that, you know, I had a different family. I wish that, well, I mean, that, that's, that's a lot of it, right? And so there's, there's many more statements that we know that are indicative of a child experiencing and expressing suicidal behavior, suicidal thoughts. And it's also true that you may be hearing this from your four, five, six, seven, eight, nine-year-old, and you may be wondering what is serious. And especially for parents of a highly sensitive child, Um, you're probably used to intense behaviors for a really, really long time. So many of the parents that we speak with and and many of our clients have been dealing with and getting used to major emotion at home for years. And so what does that mean Uh, in terms of meltdowns? That might mean that your kid's experiencing big emotions, big behaviors, destructive behaviors, or struggling with sobbing and, um, and what I call turtling up, like going internal and just shutting down completely. And that might happen on a daily basis. That might happen uh, multiple times a day, or it might happen several times throughout the week. And so especially right now during the pandemic, we are seeing many, many parents speak out, reach out, um, 
and speak up about their challenges and wonder and worry about whether or not now, given your child's life has been flipped upside down, whether or not your child expressing emotion in an intense way is really something that needs to be addressed or if you just need to ride it out. So what I want to do today is speak a lot about and bust several myths related to parenting a highly sensitive child and especially when suicide is involved. So when we think about the concern that you may be having of your child expressing wanting to hurt themselves or wanting to hurt other people or wishing that they weren't alive anymore or wishing that they weren't here anymore, which is the same thing, and we'll talk more about that in just a minute, it's super, super important for you as a parent to be informed um, because what we what we know to be true is that many parents, and I just spoke with another family earlier today, will will have the perception that they have time to address the behavior and um, and and they have time to think that um, that things will will get better on their own. And so what I want to do is is um, is really help you get the clarity of what the struggle looks like because for you as a parent, obviously, if your child says something like I wish I weren't alive or you don't love me anymore, or, I don't love you anymore and this is a repeated behavior, it's heartbreaking. That is, it can melt you, it can frustrate you, it can stun you, it can put you in a position of feeling hopeless, powerless, or helpless. And when it comes time to think about what to do, you can feel paralyzed. And so one of the things that I know for sure, and one of the reasons why I do the work that I do and why we work in this capacity across uh, at this point around the world, um, as well as in the private practice in Maryland, is that many, many parents are being told ineffective information and it just doesn't serve you and it's actually life-threatening for your child. So when we think about the challenges that you're having, if you're four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old, nine-year-old who experiences big emotion on a day-to-day -day basis, start saying things like they wish they weren't alive or they wish that they were dead or they wish that other people in the family were dead, uh, that is a very, very serious concern. Um, now, obviously, one, as a parent, you might wonder whether or not your child is saying things to either A, get attention, or B, because they're so overwhelmed they just don't have the words. And your thinking part of your brain uh, might try to take over by thinking, well, this is not uh, likely because I can keep my child safe, or this is not likely because my child is just six. Um, this is not likely because my child is just eight, nine, ten. And so part of the conversation that we're going to have today is about the likelihood of, of your child taking an action towards hurting themselves or hurting other people in your home and what you need to do to fix it because it's so, so important to understand where this thought process is coming from for you, but also where this thought process is coming from your, for your child. And your kid's life is on the line if we don't address it. So first and foremost, what I hear most often from parents is that, um, that, it, that you don't really think that your child is going to do anything about those statements, that you've got time to figure it out, or that your child is, um, it may even grow out of it. Now, when I'm saying this matter-of-factly, because I've heard this from parents for years now, 
Um, but for you as a parent to say that to yourself, you're doing that to reassure yourself. And so I get it. Um, I get it on a, a really, really personal level. You know, my sister experienced suicidal thoughts and, and I've lost two family members to suicide so far and um, significant other issues with either drug addiction or um, uh, mental health concerns. It runs in my extended family. And um, that, that is something that I know personally and I know pretty, pretty well in depth. And it's also true that I've been working in this field for over 10 years uh, since my master's degree. But beyond that, my first internship was in high school, working in a residential treatment center for highly sensitive, well, for, for children, many who were either highly sensitive or um, experienced trauma and experienced abuse. And so mismatched parenting can have kids wind up needing a higher level of care outside of an individual therapist who... Um, just plays games and, and talks about feelings and how kids can learn to do things better next time. And um, it's really important to understand that that's a reality. That's a possibility for your reality. And if you're worried about that, then that's your gut telling you that you need to listen up. You need to do something about it. You need to take action about it because if you can't listen to your gut and you're quieting your gut, then your child can't listen to theirs and they will learn to quiet their gut. And what happens is highly sensitive people significantly struggle with fostering intuition and listening to it. Highly sensitive people have a really, really um, on-point intuition a lot of times, but it could be masked by fear um, more when they don't have the skills to validate themselves. So what happens is, we see this in, in highly sensitive adults, is that they second-guess their, their decisions all the time. But in children... What this means is that if they don't know how to validate themselves, then they explode in their behavior. So the behavior looks different, but it's the same root cause. And so when I help clients address the root cause, um, the, 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 the components that need to shift are multifaceted to, to change the situation. But for you as a parent, knowing that you need to take action, it's very, very clear that if your child is threatening to hurt themselves or threatening to... Um, to not want to live anymore or is making even vague suicidal statements like that, it is time to act. It, it, it is past time to act. Um, and I say that from the bottom of my heart because I am a parent as well. Um, I've worked with, at this point, hundreds and, and beyond hundreds in terms of the clinicians that I supervise and, and uh, employ. And then, um, and it's really fucking hard to hear that from your kid. And so it's easy, er, sometimes, uh, in order to avoid the pain, to to try to justify how it's not going to happen. Um, and if your child is highly sensitive, then I have to tell you, your child's likelihood of engaging in life-threatening behaviors is much higher than the general population. And so what do I mean by that? That means that 20% of the population who's highly sensitive is uh, one in every five, okay? So your kid is already um, a, a minority in that respect. But what the majority, or at least 50% of the population who ends up in therapy is highly sensitive. 
So we have a minority population ending up being the, um, the an even split, um, you know, to be conservative, that ends up in therapy. So what does that mean? What that means is that mental health professionals are, what's my word? I'm looking for my word, <laughs> are unevenly, which is not the word I'm looking for, but it is um, a disproportionate amount of people who are highly sensitive end up being diagnosed with a mental health disorder and uh, meeting the diagnostic criteria for a mental health disorder. So typically those mental health diagnoses are generalized anxiety disorder or depression. But for children, we often see uh, kids diagnosed or misdiagnosed with ADHD when they have explosive behaviors or intense emotions and, um, and or anxiety. But your child who's highly sensitive who's having meltdowns or expressing thoughts of wanting to die or wishing that they were dead, even if they're not taking action towards that, we have to talk about the statistics here and we have to talk about the likelihood. And quite frankly, guys, um, it, it, it's human nature to perceive that you're unique and that you have this all under control. And it's also true that the statistics aren't um, fudged in, in this respect in terms of the, um, the data for death rates and things like that. And I know that this is a morbid topic, but it's also super important, especially as a mental health professional, it's my duty to inform you. But um, it's super important as a parent to understand what you're risking if you don't solve the problem, because you obviously chose to have a child and you want, it, it's, it's, it's your number one goal to help your child live not only a life, but also live their best life. And, um, and I know that you wouldn't be following me if that wasn't your your perspective and, and your objective. So um, we're going to talk about the tough stuff today. So when when we think about what's going on for highly sensitive kids who end up in therapy, a lot of the times therapists will look at a statement like that as something that will change in due time. Now, why is that important to understand? Um, and why is that not likely? Highly sensitive kids. So one out of every two who ends up in therapy is highly sensitive. And uh, the highly sensitive kids struggle with intense emotions and struggle to the point where they want to die, end up in therapy, right? Two plus two equals four. And um, the therapists who are treating children of this concern um, with, with either depression or anxiety leading to the threats to want to hurt themselves their role in solving the problem is usually pretty narrow and what do i mean by that um, the objective to solve this problem for a therapist is to help a child heal themselves from the inside out now highly sensitive people what we know in the research need to heal from the outside in that means that your relationship has to dictate the child's healing. So if your child is uh, highly sensitive and expressing thoughts of suicide or wanting to die, then you are the one who needs to change the help your child change the behavior. Um, this is decades of research, guys, since the 60s. Like there, I don't have time to go into that. That's not what we're getting at. Uh, we'll get into that um, I've gotten into that in different trainings and uh, say it again another time. But 
your relationship with your child is the catalyst of change, but a therapist's perspective is that a child's relationship with themselves is the catalyst for change. Now, this is a flaw in therapy, in the, in the mental health world, that really, really does a, a major disservice to highly sensitive people. Now, highly sensitive adults who have more control over their environment in general, just by nature of being an adult, actually fare better in therapy. So the, um, the perception that therapy is not effective for highly sensitive people is, is not accurate. It's, it's, it's helpful for highly sensitive adults. But for highly sensitive children, if there's not a strategic parent component and the therapist does not understand that the child's highly sensitive, then um, they, they are, the therapist is operating from a perception that the child can heal themselves out of that intense emotion and uh, solve the problem and, of saying they want to die. So what happens? You drop your kid off and... Um, do a 15-minute check-in at the beginning of the session or at the end of the session, and um, you get an update. Maybe you have a session every six weeks or um, you know, maybe even longer than that from the therapist about how your kid is doing, um, but without a strategic parent component on how to shift the way that you're parenting, how to change the way that you help your child manage their intense emotions at home, how to communicate about emotions on a regular basis, how to playfully engage so that you're decreasing shame and embarrassment for your child's intense emotions on a daily basis, then all of that problem-solving responsibility lands on your child. Now, the problem with that is that your child's therapist sees that as relevant and the appropriate direction to take. Um, and it's not, it doesn't work and it it doesn't work. And so what happens is that your child experiences shame just by nature of going to therapy when shame is the reason that brought them to therapy in the first place. I feel like a bad kid. I feel so bad that I want to die. That is shame. That is the emotion of shame. So, um, it is the number one creator of a suicidal attempt and, and life that, um, that maintains suicidal thoughts and behaviors. So what's, what else is, else is important? Um, highly sensitive children have a much higher likelihood of developing chronic suicidal behaviors and chronic self-harm. Now what's chronic? Chronic is anything that's lasting, uh, six months or more. So if you've been experiencing your child having, um, you know, in, the, in my work with my clients, we call them shame spirals, um, a spiral of intense emotion where your child is experiencing that shame and it leads to inappropriate or ineffective behavior, then, and that's been going on for years, then your child is already at the point where they're developing chronic suicidal self-harm, suicidal or self-harmful behaviors. They're already there. They just aren't expressing it yet in a way that makes you put your, you know, um, your sirens on. So I can't convince you of that aside from just saying it over and over and over and over and over again. But um, I can tell you that both myself and my team and all of the research in this, the, the niche that I work in, um, it, it's, it's all it all says the same stuff. Okay. 
So you gotta you gotta trust the experts on this. So because otherwise, what are you risking? What what's the risk in in you know going with what you hope is the, the risk is your child's life. Bottom line, the quality of your child's life or your child's actual life is the risk. So um, when we think about that, the the answer is simple in terms of delaying to solve the problem or thinking about it longer or needing to um, needing to do more research about solving it. So let's do the research for you. Um, four to six-year-olds who express suicidal thoughts. So here's number one. Most parents will think, um, well, you know, if my child is little and they're talking about wanting to die, they probably don't really know what that means. So it's not the right, we don't really, we, we can ride this out for a while. But according to a journal, and I have to like quote this because that's how my brain works. The in a journal article published in the Journal of American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry states that four to six-year-old children who express suicidal thoughts and behaviors have a better understanding of what it means to die than the majority of their peers. All right. So what does that mean? First and foremost, it's not developmentally appropriate for any child, any child, and it's not developmentally appropriate for any human to want to die. What is the purpose of human life? To stay alive. <laughs> so. If we experience suicidal thoughts, that is not appropriate for us at our core, which is to stay alive. If we want to literally think about self-destructing, killing our own life, that is the opposite of the purpose of human life. Okay? So regardless of what stage of development you are at, regardless of what age you are, if you are having that thought, there is something seriously wrong and not something wrong with you in terms of you being a bad person or that you're broken, but that there's something that needs to be addressed significantly right now in this moment in order to solve the problem. Because your body and brain are telling you to self-destruct as an option, as a viable option to solve your problem. Now for a six-year-old, that problem might be, I didn't get my toys or I didn't get a cookie. So you might say, well, you know what? It's not that big of a deal because it's just a cookie. But to your child, that cookie means I should self-destruct. That's where your child goes in that intense emotion. That is a very, very significant problem because children who don't feel depression, irritability, and anxiety at an intense level don't think about wanting to die when they don't get a cookie. Now, I know that this is like I'm simplifying it and I'm being pretty blunt, but it's super, super important to understand where the threshold is for your kid in terms of what's developmentally appropriate. So if you've had thoughts like this before as an adult or even in your childhood, you might think that this is part of normal, typical child development, and it's not. So um, it's really important to understand your reference point as well because you might have, maybe you're, you're not highly sensitive and you might have overcome those thoughts, but highly sensitive people who have those thoughts cannot overcome them with the traditional route of therapy um, or even with traditional route of parenting and, and actually traditional route of parenting can perpetuate those thoughts and you're actually causing the problem by not looking at it as a parent. So um, second statistic, youth and young children are more vulnerable to suicide with rates steadily rising over the past three decades and they've tripled over the last 10 years. 
And so this is a statistic coming from the National Center for Health Statistics. Again, these are American statistics because the majority of you guys are here in this group are in the U.S. Um, and it's also true that those numbers will be um, disparate across the, 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 um, across the world. But in terms of what's happening, if you're using your reference point as a parent, well, I used to have those thoughts, so it's unlikely. Um, as a parent, that was, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. <laughs> 10 doesn't make any sense, sorry. 20, 30, 40 years ago, where you might have been having those thoughts. And the statistics in terms of the likelihood of your child engaging in suicidal thoughts or having and being vulnerable to suicide, that means actually attempting suicide and dying by suicide, has increased significantly. The suicide rates are, are increasing. So your reference point of how you survived that and grew up and were, are fine now is not relevant to your child's reference point and your reference point as a parent. So it's really important to understand that, that, that um, those two things cannot be used in tandem to justify uh, not taking action on solving the problem. Um, in addition, it's also important to understand, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but um, suicide is the second leading cause of death among people ages 10 to 34, and that's according to the CDC. Now, I know the CDC... <laughs> The statistics are like a big question mark in terms of what's going on in the world of the pandemic. But these statistics have been consistent um, for, for years now um, in terms of suicide. So I really want you to notice that. So here's the 10 leading causes of death by age group in the United States. All right. So what this means is that if you are concerned that your child might be hit by a car, right? You, you, your three-year-old runs out into the street. You're screaming at your kid, get out of the car, you know, get out of the way. Come on, come, come back here, right? You're chasing after your child. That's because the likelihood of your child dying of unintentioned injury is actually the highest um, related to accidents between ages one through 44. So most people will die by accident, all right? Um, and... It's also true that by the time your kid hits 10, the second leading cause of death is suicide. So most of you are concerned about, you know, how do I make sure that my child goes to school? How do I make sure that my child eats healthily? How do I make sure that my child um, you know, follows through on expectations and becomes a kind, compassionate person? Um, what's, the, what's the logic of that, right? Like, raising an effective human, right? <laughs> Somebody who's successful, happy, healthy, high functioning, um, and, and, you know, engages in healthy, physically healthy decisions, right? So eating healthily, how do I get my kid to eat vegetables, that kind of stuff. Um, what is that meant to prevent? Heart disease, right? Or unhealthy living, or just feeling like crap in general, right? And so it's important to understand that according to this According to the statistics, your child actually has a higher likelihood of dying by suicide than by heart disease, than by other concerns with their health. So it's super important for you to prioritize this. And uh, mental health is often brushed under the rug or because it's invisible at times. Now, for you, being a parent of a highly sensitive child, it's unlikely that it's an invisible uh, concern because you're seeing lots of behaviors that are concerning. Um it's also important to understand that the behaviors that you're seeing are not developmentally appropriate. So what does that mean? If your child's engaging in daily meltdowns beyond age one, daily meltdowns beyond age one, then there's a significant concern because a tantrum is different than a meltdown. 
And tantrums stop at age four. And so if your child is crying because they're not getting something that they want, then that is likely a tantrum. But if they're overwhelmed and they are spiraling into complete body discontrol, body lack of control, then that is a meltdown. So if your child's having a meltdown on a daily basis beyond age one, it is not developmentally appropriate. And at age one, that's super, super overwhelming for parents. So um, it's also true that the, the likelihood of your child growing out of that is much higher when you either shift your parenting or uh, if you give it some time. So that's why I set that parameter um, beyond age one. Because at that point, it's toddlerhood, your child is going to be developing language, going to be developing the ability to grab things that they want and manipulate their body in a way that's more controlled. Um, And it's also true that they're still um, learning all of those things and taking major leaps in their brain development. So that's important to to notice. But major intense meltdowns still at age one is really, really challenging for parents. So it's important to understand that um, if your child was, quote unquote, difficult or colicky or struggling and you've just come across the research about highly sensitive kids it's also true that it's likely that your child is is highly sensitive just by nature of of the the frequency of their meltdowns even if they don't meet the uh, the particular criteria for uh hitting the 13 question threshold of of elaine aaron's um parent self-report so that important understanding is not anecdotal. Um, the, the research that I've studied over, over, you know, the last couple of decades, last decade at this point, as well as my experience is solid on, uh, concern concerning that. What I think is also important for parents, um, for parents at this point is to look at what, what developmental behavior, what developmental, um, appropriate behavior is for a highly sensitive child because we will hear a lot of um, misinformation even for professionals in this field coaching parents of highly sensitive kids or um, parents of highly sensitive children will misinform um, other parents of highly sensitive kids so that's super important now if your child's experiencing intense emotion on a daily basis it's safe to say that the environment feels conflictual, right? Like if you're walking on eggshells every day, if you're holding your breath during the day, if your child's intense mood is sucking the air out of the room, dictating the emotion of the the rest of the family, at best, you're holding it down and preventing meltdowns just by nature of either giving into what your kid wants or um, the other siblings are giving into what they want or they are... Um, or you're, 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 you're just lowering your expectations for your child and just saying, you know, we can't go to the park on a regular basis, or um, we're going to have to leave early. My child can't tolerate um, staying here at a party because they want presents too, or whatever, whatever happens, or I'm just embarrassed and I don't want to yell in front of other people. So we're just going to go. Um, so if, if all of those things are happening for you, then you're obviously already trying to decrease and prevent the meltdowns just by nature of being in survival mode. So some of those experiences that you may be having and you might be discounting if your child's not having daily meltdowns, it's important to look at a bigger picture than that um, or daily intense outbursts. 
So this is why I, I don't often uh, give direct advice in this group because there's so many factors that I don't know what's playing until we get on the phone. So um, it, it, when we think about where you guys are at, and it's, it's easier for me to teach in this respect and for you to take that component, and then if you need direct support, then we get on the phone um, or you seek professional support elsewhere because your particular family's circumstances fits into global research and dynamics and likelihood, as well as understanding that while every family is different, there are certain developmental marker markers that are, that are not appropriate for children to be experiencing. The reason why I use the word appropriate, it's not because um, your child is being inappropriate. It's because it's not expected at their developmental stage in life. So it's not expected at any developmental stage in life for a child, teen or adult to want to self-destruct, to want to die or to threaten to die or to think about dying. Okay. So to go back to the original statistics that I started with, four to six year olds who are thinking or stating and talking about suicide, they're actually much more likely able to describe how someone dies and why someone might die than a child who is not thinking about suicide. So a child who is not thinking about suicide is not paying attention to the details on how one dies. Okay. So if you're paying attention to the details about how you might die, and then you can dictate that, and then you say you want to die, those are all inter interrelated. Um, when we look at and we work with, with teens, a, um, a, a marker of depression and a, a marker of, um, of taking an action towards suicide or, or attempt towards suicide is fascination with death and dying. So the same thing for a four to six-year-old, if they are and that's developmentally appropriate, if they're able to tell you how people die and, and, and be accurate in their description of that and detailed in their description of that, then they are much more likely to understand the concept of death and to, to be truthfully talking to you when they are saying that they wish they would die. So all of those things are relevant. It's super important for you to be informed about that because uh, it's in human nature as a parent to like not think or to not wonder or worry um, or to not want to worry, wonder or worry whether or not your child is um, wanting to die because that there's no way around it. That freaking sucks. Um, it's awful to think that um, or to even worry about that. So what do we do in human nature when we don't want to look at something? We um, we stick our head in the sand or we look for evidence that uh, that's not the case. But suicide is not something that you can just look for evidence because um, the, the likelihood of children dying through suicide is much more likely related to an impulsive decision rather than a planned decision. So you won't have the warnings that, um, that you may think you'll have if your child is, um, is having, you know, depression and suicidal thoughts and behaviors as, as an older adolescent, um, or an, or an adult. Now, again, um, you still don't get the warning if you've experienced suicide. Um, it's really hard to, to, to notice those warnings when they're right in front of your face. So um, that's super, super important to understand. Um, because again, human nature is to discount the consideration of that. So we justify it. We, we um, 
we think that it's not going to be happening or we find reasons to think that it's not relevant. Uh, this is called confirmation bias. If we have an opinion, then we look for reasons to confirm that that's accurate. Um, so we might have an opinion that our child is not going to um, take an action to hurt themselves or take an action to, um, uh, to that would be impulsively dangerous. And we would look for reasons why that's true. So um, you can actually um, significantly miss details in, uh, in that dynamic. So the next thing that's important to understand in terms of daily meltdowns or regular meltdowns on a weekly or more basis, multiple times a day sometimes for parents that I'm speaking with uh, on these calls um, and, and then in our practice, um, high family conflict, that's, highly, that's, that's conflictual, right? I think we can all agree that this is conflictual. High family conflict is significantly associated with suicidal ideation and non-suicidal self-injury. And this is from a longitudinal study um, called the Adolescent Brain Cognitive Development Study. Uh, they're examining 11,814 people, adolescents over a long period of time in terms of studying the brain health of, of adolescents. And it, that study involves parent and caretaker participants as well. So it's a, um, a study that, that covers a lot of bases. So when we think about the challenges that you're having and the thought process that we know to be true, I really, really, really want to help you see, I do, did a lot of reallys, <laughs> using a lot of statistics and then a lot of reallys today, um, that, that this is so important to, to be taken care of because when, when I, when I worked at the residential treatment center where we saw people from across the country, um, when I worked at, uh, in, in, uh, in a government setting where we saw families from across the world who experienced generational trauma, who didn't experience any trauma, um, and their children were, were suicidal or engaging in self-harmful behaviors or explosive behaviors. Um, this is not a trauma specific risk. So if you say, you know, look, my kid has all of these, um, my kid has all of these uh, privileges, opportunities, we're a great family, we laugh, we have fun, we go to parks, we, we don't slow down in terms of, um, you know, we, we don't, if my child's uh, having major meltdowns, we still move on with our daily lives, we won't, we refuse to let that paralyze us. Um, or on the flip side, we will um, slow down to, to stop the behavior or because we just don't think our kid can handle it. And so we stay at home. It's important to understand that the meltdowns themselves are traumatic for your child. So um, whether or not they are traumatic for the family dynamic is neither here nor there. Your child's intense emotions are raising their fight or flight system and they are doing that on a regular basis and that in and of itself is teaching the body to, to self-destruct. So even if your child is not, um, is not at a point yet where they are saying things that like they want to die or, or I hate you. Now think about that. I put those two things together because as a child, your first and foremost sense of safety is your parent, your relationship with your parent. And if you hate your parent, then you are hating your extension of safety. So when you follow that line and a child says that more often than not, then it's important to understand that underlying component 
that your child is feeling disconnected to their sense of safety and and um, invalidated by their sense of safety. So that might mean a relationship with one or both parents um, in the household, and that's a serious concern. So um, we can't just take our child's words as just words. Um, the field of therapy and, and human development and human behavior has evolved beyond that perception, guys. We've evolved beyond the perception that children are just thought bubbles that, um, that, that, that they don't really mean anything. Children are thinking, feeling, talking, wondering, emoting, true, 100% whole humans. And so that means that their emotions are all of those things, 100% whole. And we can't discount it just because they're little, just because it's unlikely that they would figure out how to, um, to work a, a, a handgun or a noose, because it's important to understand that, that while you don't want to look at that as a parent and it's not your field of study, fine. But it is mine, and it is something I've been looking at for years. And so I say it because you have to hear it. <sighs> because there's a lot of professionals out there who will say that they're going to grow out of it. A lot of professionals out there who will say that your child is, is um, that that's not that big of a deal. And that going to therapy once a week. I mean, I spoke with the parents who, who were going to therapy twice a month when their child was making statements of wanting to die. What can your kid do in two times, two hours a month to digest information that will help them change their lives, let alone stay alive? Uh, two times a month therapy is something that you do on the way out of therapy, not on the way in. That's a whole different ball of wax. So look, if this sounds like your kid, if you are worried and struggling with the perception or worry or concern that your child is emotionally unable to manage their intense emotions and feel safe at the same time and feel a desire to live at the same time, then I implore you to seek professional support. Whether or not that's me um, is neither here nor there at this point. Because if I could take, you know, if I could rewind the tape and, and shake my family members into figuring out how to get help so that they stayed alive, I would. Um, but I can't because once you kill yourself, you're dead. So um, that's it. And, and, and quite frankly, the, the experience that I have in this realm um, there are many families that I speak to on the phone where I tell you that, that you don't need the support right now, or now's not the effective time or, or things are doing, um, uh, your kids developmentally appropriate, you know, go ahead and, and solve the problem. Uh, just, just keep on doing what you're doing. Um, but a lot of the time, by the time parents get on the phone with me, it's time to take action. It's time to solve the problem and it's time to make a decision on how you're going to do that. So, um, if you're ready to do that, if you're ready to solve that problem and make that decision, then I can help you do that. I can't tell you right now if we're a good fit because I need to know where you're struggling, whether or not you're committed to fix it, and whether or not I can help you. And that I have to do on the phone. So um, that's where we're at.
So you go ahead and book a call. The call is free. It's not going to do anything to you aside from looking at the clarity that you need to solve the problem that you're struggling with. Thank you for joining me on this episode of How to Parent Your Highly Sensitive Child Like a Ninja. We release a brand new episode every week, so be sure to click subscribe. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in seeing if you're a fit to work with us at MTC, here's what I want you to do next. Head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call and book an appointment with our team. We'll get on the phone for about 60 minutes and we'll get you clarity on where you're stuck in parenting your sensitive child or teen what your goals are for supporting your child's development. And if we can help you, we'll get you started on knowing exactly what to do to eliminate that meltdown cycle. Eliminating the daily meltdown cycle does not happen by itself. You need expert guidance to make it happen. And we've helped hundreds of clients from all over the world end that cycle in as little as eight weeks. So to see if we can help you do the same, head on over to meganthompsoncoaching.com backslash call. I'm Megan Thompson. And we look forward to speaking to you soon.